Hello, and thank you for supporting the history of World War II podcast, episode 14, The Cannon King. Now that Alfred had regular contact with and received visits from the new king, Wilhelm I, Bismarck, and other officials, he was practically a member of the court. Time, events, and mutual needs would bind whichever current German monarch there was with the oldest male of the Krupp line, and this cycle would allow the Krupps to become the first national family. But Alfred occasionally forgot that he was only serving a purpose and a much larger scheme. Wilhelm I would not have interfered in any business disputes Alfred found himself in because of his magnificent railroad tires or springs. It was his role as a gunmaker that catapulted him to his current position. But this did not mean that Alfred's troubles were behind him. On the contrary, when he faltered in the future, his fall would be that much further now. For example, professional soldiers, including the brass, were still clinging to bronze cannon, and Wilhelm, who dreamed of a mighty German empire, had those others who were equally indispensable as the cannon king to consider. Then there was Alfred's biggest obstacle to his success, himself. He rubbed powerful men the wrong way, especially when he was trying to schmooze them. His latest victim was Baron von Roon, and this man, in his position as war minister, didn't want to consider Alfred's latest variation of the canon. Mad genius though Alfred was, the genius part of that was there for a reason. His latest revolutionary idea of rifling the barrels was flat out rejected, and his next alteration would hardly do any better. Soon after, he came out with breech-loading cannon and couldn't wait to show them off. But the army had the same response to his rear-loading cannon as it did to his rifled barrels. They would return any of those items, and no payment would be forthcoming. This was language they knew Alfred would understand. But they didn't understand Alfred. The head of Krupps, instead, chose to play the game that he had learned so well over the years. He raised the stakes. He not only wanted the government to buy his rear-loading cannon and rifled barrels, but he also wanted a 15-year patent on the breech-loading design. Von Roon, who wasn't as cosmopolitan as some of his comrades, used Alfred's written request as toilet paper, and then told everyone about it. Eventually, Alfred heard about this and went straight to the king, who, unfortunately, spread his royal hands in a gesture of helplessness. You see, as much as the king, who planned on conquering everything around him, needed Krupp's guns, he also needed speedy deployments of exacting calculations to offset his soon-to-be enemies' more numerous forces. And von Roon, the vulgar, was another indispensable genius in his own right. It was a clash of the two intelligent but socially obtuse giants. Alfred, being Alfred, brought to bear every conceivable type of pressure on Rune, but the Kriegsminister was unimpressed and immovable. Besides, time would show that the wedge mechanism being used by Alfred in the cannon's rear was defective. 
to the detriment and death of any standing behind the cannon as it went off. But that was for the future. For now, only after England and France gave Alfred his patent for the breechloaders did Prussia and von Roon follow suit. But there was another ironic issue that would make Alfred's life hard in the future, when the dogs of war were slipped and havoc was cried. Alfred needed large and constant orders for his merchandise to keep his concern afloat, and there was no way Prussia could accommodate this. So, starting in the early 1860s, he also sold cannon to Russia, Belgium, Holland, Spain, Switzerland, England, and Austria. Note the last country mentioned. But Berlin knew of this. How could they not? But more than this, his own government helped him with letters of introduction and recommendations. War might be international, but so was business. Soon after, though, the orders from England slowed down, as London was trying to support home-based industries. Now on the scene, on the island nation, was the Company of Armstrong, which meant now there were three, Krupp, Armstrong, and in France, Schneider. But make no mistake, Krupp's was the biggest, most well-known, and simply, for now, the best. At this time, Alfred's continual growth was due to Russia. Tsar Alexander II was his biggest customer and about to get a lot bigger. Sometime at the beginning of the 1860s, an influential member of the Russian military noticed Alfred's freak cannon sitting in St. Petersburg. It was tested again and again astounded those who witnessed its capabilities. In response, in the fall of 1863, an order came from the Tsar's generals worth a million dollars. That's T-H-A-L-E-R-S. Alfred was so moved, he almost became a Cossack overnight. So now a second gun factory had to be built. Alfred was going to get that mountain of money. Soon after, while Alfred was slaving away in the interests of Russia, he came upon an article that described him as Der Kanonenkunig, Cannon King. He was overjoyed, and thanks to Russia, rich. Rich and overjoyed. Soon after, a Paris newspaper called him Le Roi de Canon. Then London, not to be outdone, hailed him as the Cannon King. The name stuck. From this moment on, the head of Krupps would be known as the Cannon King. As the mid-1860s approached, Krupps was running on all cylinders. The Gustavfabrik was torn down and completely rebuilt. The garden house was kept as a guest house. His new factory now had added three machine shops, three additional rolling mills, a wheelwright's shop, an axle turnery, a gun hammer house, and a boiler shop. But who would man all these new machines? That was easy. Displaced or out-of-work farmers. Essence population rose by more than 150% during the decade. The labor crisis was worked out, but not the shortage of cash crisis. Alfred wanted to own all the natural resources that kept his hammers pumping. Coal mines were snatched up. Iron ore mines, 50 alone in the Ruhr, were bought. But still, he wanted more. His ledger had long become a series of ledgers. And as can be expected, the strain started getting to the man. 
for man he was, after all. He aged before his workers' eyes. But for all this dazzling growth of industry, Alfred was just a piece on Wilhelm's chessboard. It was now time to use what Krupp had given him. In early January of 1864, Prussia and Austria joined forces, and in a fast move, thanks to Ruhn and his railway system, attacked and took the two duchies of Schleswig-Holstein from Denmark. Alfred had won in his own battle with Ruhn, and his rifled breech loaders were sent north as well. Fortunately for Alfred, the campaign was over far too quickly to put many of his innovative guns to the test. Also, the artillery officers were still skittish in using the unknown quantity. This victory was due more to the overwhelming odds of Ruin's maneuvering of men than Krupp's cannon, but afterward, Wilhelm still placed another large order in Essen. Alfred might have been disappointed that his guns did not play a superior role than they did, but now that the god of war Mars was on the scene, other conflicts were sure to arise. The question was of between whom and when. The answer came soon enough. The alliance between Prussia and Austria was never nothing more than a stepping stone for Wilhelm and Bismarck, and it wasn't long before the two nations were arguing over their recently acquired territory from their joint venture. At the beginning of 1866, the sales of Krupp steel had never been better. The United States seemed like a bottomless pit in terms of rail tire orders. And the growing tension between the two former German allies helped drive up anxious gun sales. Baden, Württemberg, and Bavaria all ordered Krupp guns of various sizes and numbers. Wilhelm sent in an equally impressive order. 162 four-pounders, 250 six-pounders, and 115 24-pounders. This was not the order of a country looking only to defense. But then Austria ordered 24 more guns, and Alfred gleefully put his workers onto it. A sale was a sale, right? Well, not to von Roon. The war minister might use Krupp stationery as toilet paper, but he could see for himself the quality of Krupp steel. So the last thing he wanted was to have his soon-to-be foe using this superb cast steel against the men he commanded. On April 9, 1866, just 24 hours after the two countries began to mobilize and Bismarck had just signed an alliance with Italy, von Roon sent Alfred an inquisitive letter. Quote, I venture to ask whether you are willing, out of patriotic regard to the present political conditions, to undertake not to supply any guns to Austria without the consent of the king's government. Unquote. Alfred waited a whole five days before meekly answering, Quote, Of political conditions, I know very little. I only go on working diligently. Unquote. He went on to say that the first part of the order wasn't to be delivered until June, and the rest six weeks later after that. If the king wanted to take the guns when they were en route, well, that was his business. He was the king, after all. And fortunately, the two countries were not, thank God, at war. Maybe something could be worked out. 
One has to admire the cast steel testicles needed to write such a long, evasive, winding, hopeful no to His Majesty's government. Then Bismarck stepped in. The two had, after all, hit it off when Wilhelm had become monarch. The Chancellor's opening gesture was that God had nothing to do with this. There was going to be war. What was Alfred going to do? Again, Krupp girded his cast steel loins. Quote, I said that we must fulfill obligations that which we have undertaken. Unquote. Bismarck, being a man of the world, replied that he understood, but maybe, perhaps, the deliveries could be delayed. But at this, Alfred demurred. He had to think of his reputation. Instead, he replied, if Berlin was worried about its defenses against Austria, the best idea was to order more guns from him. The pair on that man. Maybe titanium was invented before we think it all was. Oh, but Alfred wasn't finished. He then wrote that, as he had been asking for years now, if Berlin could fund his works, then he wouldn't have to worry about fulfilling orders from Austria, say, two million dollars? Obviously, this situation now had to be taken to senior management. But as we are talking about Bismarck here, that only left Wilhelm. But the king didn't have time for niceties, and as the king, he didn't have to observe them, either. His stinging reply was, quote, come to your senses while there is still time, unquote. Even Alfred could interpret this only one way. Being yelled at by a king, a real king, with the power of life and death, would shake anyone, even Alfred. He gave in and then scurried away for the warmth and affection of Berta, his 12-year-old son, Fritz, and the son at Nice. Two out of three ain't bad. Berta was still Berta. As Alfred was taking the cure for his ruptured nerves and straining the nerves of his wife, Austria was joined by Bavaria, Hanover, Baden, and Württemberg, and battle was joined. Most experts predicted a long, drawn-out war which would drain all contestants. But they were all wrong. It was over in just seven weeks. And it would be wrong to say that Krupp's guns made the difference. But we'll get to that in a moment. The Prussian victory was a team effort, as most are in war. Von Roon developed the transportation system, and General Helmut von Mott coordinated its applications by moving his men in boxcars using a small army of telegraphers. Communication and organization put overwhelming forces in places before the defenders knew what was going on. July 3rd of that year, 1866, saw many Austrian infantry mowed down. A taste of what was to come. But what about Krupp's cannons? By July 9th, Alfred was back in Essen, and the first report from his favorite general sounded positive. But really, it was just spin at its finest. The truth was that the improper angles of his breech-loading slots had let gas and fire leak out of the back of the cannon. So, as one went off after a few shots, the four- and six-pounders exploded, killing the men behind them. Alfred soon got the same reports from St. Petersburg during test firings. Suddenly, everything went from running at full steam to running off the tracks. 
Alfred's reputation, his future orders, his current profits were the other more pressing victims. There was only one thing to do. He hightailed it out of Essen and headed for the Black Forest. Once there, in the quiet, Alfred's imagination went into overdrive. And considering that we are talking about Alfred Krupp, that's saying something. What would Wilhelm think? What about his friend Bismarck? What about Rune? How he must be laughing right now. Suddenly, the Black Forest wasn't far enough away. It was time to visit Switzerland. But first, he posted a letter to the king. He took some of the blame, placed most of it on others, and promised to replace all the suspect guns free of charge. But just in case he wasn't taken up on his offer, he would stay away for a while, as in a year. Again, he needed comfort. He needed his wife. Leaving Switzerland, he made for Nice, France, where Berta was still vacationing. A local doctor, who had seen him last time he showed up, observed how the arms manufacturer had aged so much in such a short time. He was scrawnier than ever before, as well as more crabby. Again, that's saying something. Staying in Nice, Alfred puttered about as his work had always been his life, but now his enthusiasm was no longer in it. However, Alfred's character was set. Little by little, he became restless for his work and started writing to customers. Through them, he found out that the situation in Prussia wasn't as bad as he first thought. Still, he stayed away. The concern was being run by his four-man board of managers. But the works would survive because, namely, this was the time of steel and Krupp was a steelmaker. Little constant improvements were being made or discovered by some young engineer or another. The progress of higher quality steel was, well, progressing. One example of this was when Carl Wilhelm Siemens improved the open hearth furnace, which could take melted pig iron and scraps of steel, burn off the gases, and leave one with an even higher quality of cast steel. And because Krupp's was the most prominent steelmaker, the process was offered to Essen. And back home, political fences were being mended by certain officers for the steelmaker. It's true that some of his cannon were defective because of the imperfect breech-loading wedges, but some had worked perfectly. The investigation after the conflict ended in a hung jury. This judgment, combined with Alfred working behind the scenes through letters and certain officers, especially one Gustav Eduard von Hindensen, who was the chief of artillery in Bohemia during the war, worked on the king in his behalf. Soon, future purchases from the government was viable. And the last necessary part was also achieved. The design flaw in the breech loaders had been singled out and fixed. Krupp now demanded a test firing at the Teagle range, and soon everyone who mattered, Bismarck, the King, Molt, and even Rune, were convinced of the cannon's superiority. Now, back in the King's good graces, Alfred's confidence returned, but also his arrogance. By early 1867, he was trying to influence royal appointments within the War Department. And now that he was back, if not physically in Essen, 
at least in his Cannon King role, Alfred pursued sales wherever he could, damn the consequences or political situations. In fact, less than a year after being royally slapped down, he was trying to strengthen the French during the height of its tension with Prussia over Luxembourg in 1868. And even before that, showing the French what he had to offer at the second Paris exhibition in 1867. He displayed an 880-pound ingot alongside a 14-inch gun. The former was sitting on a reinforced floor at the behest of the judges who remembered last time, and the latter was labeled a monster such as the world has never seen. And there couldn't have been a better description. The barrel of the beast weighed 50 tons. Its carriage, another 40 tons. The powder charge for each shell alone was 100 pounds. But Krupp wasn't done because he hadn't learned anything yet. In September 1867, Bismarck had maneuvered to keep Luxembourg out of Napoleon III's hands. And Alfred, hoping the French emperor was embarrassed enough to consider buying his goods, sent him a shopping list on the last day of January in 1868. But the French, despite seeing for themselves the incredible durability and accuracy of Krupp's guns, declined ordering any in March of that year. Alfred, disappointed at not selling his hardware to the French, as it was clear war would soon exist between it and Prussia, despondently gave the monster to his own country's military as a gesture of goodwill. But he also sent another one to his best client thus far, the Tsar of all the Russias. And Alfred, still sulking from not making a sale in Paris, decided it would be better to sulk in Russia, the home of his best client. Yet, then fate, history, the passions of men, or the last resort of kings, take your pick, made sure that Alfred's factories would soon be busy and profitable again. After Bismarck had outmaneuvered Napoleon III concerning Luxembourg, the French leader was ready for a showdown with Germany. To wit, Wilhelm was more than happy to oblige, and he wasn't the only German to think that way. Ever since October 29, 1857, the day Moltke was made chief of the general staff, six days after Wilhelm became the Prince Regent, there was an understanding that France needed to be beaten and humiliated. Napoleon was thinking along the same lines as touching Germany. But before the major antagonists could come to blows, there was a battle of a more personal nature for Alfred to see finished. In June of 1869, Rune wanted this whole business of bronze versus cast steel for cannons settled. The king, already leaning towards his man for Messen, asked an officer known to favor Krupp of his opinion. The general simply said that Alfred's guns had the muzzle velocity of 1,700 feet per second and could bring that up to 2,000 feet per second. Bronze cannon could not match that. And even if a bronze cannon could be made large enough to equal those numbers, it would have to be so heavy as to be immovable. That settled it for Wilhelm. By April of 1870, Paris and Berlin knew that a war between them was inevitable. But the question was, who would be the one to declare themselves first? 
Bismarck was ready to go, not concerned about the niceties. But Wilhelm, the king, was. He had to be. But soon Bismarck was given a gift from the gods, probably Mars. Spain had dethroned Isabella II and was looking for another monarch. Bismarck quietly backed Prince Leopold, a Hohenzollern. Now he just had to wait for Napoleon to back another royal personage, and the fuse would be lit. So war is coming. Northern Europe will be engulfed in flame, explosions, and death. Gun sails would climb to the sky. In fact, Wilhelm had all but passed Alexander II as Alfred's biggest customer. But the man from Essen was not happy. Nay, he was prostrate, having secluded himself from the world. He was almost paralyzed with unhappiness. Why? Why, because of the new house he was going to build. That's why. Not a big deal. The collective response would be, don't say that in front of Alfred. The man who could take something as ordinary as designing a new home and expand its importance to the size where it eclipses the war he had been waiting his whole life for. Because it wasn't just going to be a house. It was going to be a monument to himself. The location was all important. The air around his current home was so filled with dust, smoke, and soot that it was probably killing him. He needed to get away. Of course, he didn't mind if his workers lived there year-round. Yes, location was key, but so was size, as his testament of his greatness had to include, well, the house, of course, but also stables, courtyards, got to have room for those peacocks, a riding track, gardens, wells, fountains, fish ponds, and just general grandness. And, of course, being Alfred, he wanted the location chosen in secret. If asked, Alfred confided that he was doing this to win back his wife, uh, impossible, or at least his son, equally impossible, as long as Berta was alive. He also wanted to have a place worthy of visiting kings and other dignitaries. But he could have taken care of that just by buying a castle that had a lot of debt. There were plenty to be had. And finally, his last argument was, and honestly, he was leaving a monument to himself. Well, at least on that note, he succeeded magnificently. Just do a search on Villa Hugul, H-U-G-E-L. But this is just the beginning of the story of Villa Hugul. There was no way Alfred, with his eccentricities, could simply design and build a house and have it done. Alfred needed drama. He needed crises after crises to run to or away from. And the building of his monument to himself would be his ultimate display of bipolarism, or just plain fruitiness. First, he had to have the best architect in the world. Luckily for him, he ran into this man every time he looked into a mirror. Yes, he would design it himself. That way, it would be perfect. And in order to avoid fires, it would be made of steel, of course, and stone. Using gas for lighting was too dangerous, so candelabras it would be. And it would add a bit of the dramatic, don't you think? Next, he concerned himself with his secrecy and or his safety. Same thing. There would be three barriers, each using three locks, 
between the general area of the house and his bedroom. Of course, all the windows would be permanently sealed. Pneumonia, you know. But then he wouldn't be able to take in his favorite aroma, horse manure. No problem. His study would be situated over the stables, and a vent would connect the two. Done and done. Now, it needed a name, something flashy. Villa Hugul, or Hillside Villa. That sounded about right. He had started on this project years before war broke out between his country and France. But the pressure he put on himself was mounting, and now he had to deal with this, to him, a petty international crisis. If he could trust himself to design the house, he could surely survey the land himself. So he ordered his men to build a large wooden tower with wheels so his men could push him all around while he, at the top with a spyglass, viewed the surrounding area. Alfred pushed on in his interminable way, and eventually the house was designed. The land was chosen, and he laid the cornerstone of his castle in April 1870. But getting back to the larger world, on June 19, 1870, Prince Leopold of Hohenzollern had decided to take the offered Spanish crown. Of course, this leaked out, and Paris soon heard the whispers. The French Minister of Foreign Affairs was outraged and threatened the Prussian capital. Wilhelm advised Prince Leopold to reconsider his future job. But for the French, that wasn't good enough. Not anymore. They wanted an apology from Wilhelm himself. He calmly declined while at a spa. But as his apology had to be in writing, this task was given to Bismarck on July 13th. With Rune and Moult by his side, the men gleefully edited the document to elicit a desired result from the French. And it worked perfectly. Two days later, the insulted Napoleon III declared war. Alfred should have been happy, delirious even, but all he could think of was his castle. And here is why he moped about. The material he needed that he had decided on as his own architect was French limestone from Chantilly, just outside of Paris. Damn all wars, he must have thought. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. Um, if you're disappointed that I did not go into detail about the war, um, never fear. Zach Twomley from the When Diplomacy Fails podcast has already taken care of that for me. Uh, I listened to it. I enjoyed it very much, and so I just decided not to duplicate his work. But if you go to iTunes or check out When Diplomacy Fails and listen to Episode 1 and 1.5, it will cover it in, in all great detail and all the uh, maneuvering that Bismarck did with manipulating the letter, the written response. Um, you'll get a much better understanding, and you'll have just discovered a really awesome podcast. Thank you, Zach.